As you know, in 2001, a group primarily made up of Seattle-based businessmen came together to establish the Basketball Club of Seattle. The ultimate goal has been and continues to be to preserve the future of, of professional basketball here in the Northwest region and to do it in a way that I think reaffirms our commitment to our fans. Today, although this is extremely difficult and for me personally disappointing, I'm really proud to be able to announce that after careful analysis of all the possible scenarios, the Basketball Club of Seattle has entered into an agreement with the Professional Basketball Club, LLC, to purchase the Seattle Supersonics and the Seattle Storm. It is our desire to have the Sonics and Storm remain in Seattle. Sonics, Storm, and Seattle are synonymous. And we have great respect for history. If a commitment for a new building is not realized, then we will evaluate our options, which will include relocation. The Sonics uh, have a valid lease with the City of Seattle through 2010, uh, and we intend to enforce that lease. We've got a place, and we've got the people, and we've got a much better city in which to play basketball. Senator Gorton and the mayor are determined to exact whatever pound of flesh is possible here, and they will, and then the team will leave. This is about us. This is about Seattle. This is about making sure that the NBA and the nation know that they can't come in and just take something from us and think we're going to lie down. Save our sons! Save our sons! Save our sons! Save our sons! Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. All right, buckle up, friends. It's going to be an interesting conversation for sure. Hi there. My name is Tim Hanlon, and you have found Good Seats Still Available, the curious little podcast that is uh, devoted to each and every week, if you can believe it, what used to be in professional sports and um, what a clip that is uh, and it is from a movie that uh, came out about 10 years ago it's called Sonic's Gate and uh, if you haven't seen it uh, drop what you're doing stop this podcast and immediately either go to YouTube or go to our link at goodseatsstillavailable.com search up this episode and click the link into Amazon Prime and watch it all the way through uh, it is an amazing story uh, put together by our guests this week, Jason Reed and Adam Brown, filmmakers and documentarians, they uh, out of Seattle uh, about the story of the Seattle Supersonics, the team that uh, uh, absconded left in a very messy divorce uh, kind of way uh, back uh, about a decade ago uh, and uh, is newly interesting to uh, to lots of people, especially uh, with one of the main characters in that saga, a guy named Howard Schultz, who is uh, getting ready to run uh, supposedly as an independent candidate for president uh, in 2020. And uh, most people may not remember 
that uh, Howard Schultz was uh, part uh, of the ownership saga uh, that was the Seattle Supersonics. Uh, uh, he and his uh, group uh, of investors uh, own the team. They purchased the team from uh, the uh, actually the second ever owner of the uh, of the Sonics, Barry Ackerley, uh, back in 2001 and in relatively short order uh, demanded and tried his best. Uh, some would put best in quotes uh, to get uh, a, a more suitable uh, arena for the Seattle Supersonics team. Uh, and uh, this against the backdrop in the, the early 2000s of a, a league, the NBA and sports in general, uh, sort of ascending to uh, uh, stratospheric uh, levels in terms of uh, new facilities and desirous of uh, of new revenue streams beyond ticket sales and uh, and uh, and the like. And um, it is a story, a sad one in many respects for Seattle basketball fans. You have to remember that this team, the Seattle Supersonics, uh, was Seattle's first ever uh, professional sports franchise. Uh, uh, started in 1968, uh, even a year before uh, the uh, Seattle Pilots that we've talked about. And, uh, you know, it is a, a team rich in history, won an NBA championship in the late 70s. Uh, and um, uh, in essence, uh, it was, uh, in a, uh, you know, uh, quite uh, beloved uh, by the city of Seattle. My mistake. I'm sorry. 19, not 68, 67, 1967 is when the team came into being. All the more reason, frankly, uh, for why the uh, the uh, uh, the demise of the team and its uh it's a departure to uh, what is now the Oklahoma City Thunder. Uh, was that uh, more dramatic and more sad, frankly? Uh, and it's a story uh, rich in uh, uh, in uh, intrigue, uh, in political uh, uh, battles, uh, and frankly, hubris. Uh, not just, uh, by the way, of uh, uh, of uh, Howard Schultz, but uh, you've got some very interesting characters uh, in here uh, that uh, we're going to get into with our guests this week. Jason Reed and Adam Brown, they the uh, filmmakers behind uh, the extraordinary documentary called Sonic's Gate. Uh, and we're going to get into all of the Seattle Supersonics history, uh, the messy uh, disentanglements, uh, the uh, the leaving for Oklahoma City, as well as perhaps what might be the future of, uh, of basketball and maybe the Sonics again in Seattle, uh, given all that's happened in the uh, last number of months with the NHL coming back ex- uh, to the Pacific Northwest, et cetera. Uh, in our conversation coming up in just a couple of moments, you will not want to miss a moment of it, I assure you. Uh, and it's a, it's, a, it's a wonderful conversation. Uh, before we get there, I want to uh, thank uh, all of our great sponsors. But this week, I want to feature our friends at uh, OldSchoolShirts.com. Uh, that's uh, P.F. Wilson and his uh, team, uh, in beautiful downtown Cincinnati, Ohio, home of FC Cincinnati. Uh, congratulations to them and their MLS uh, exploits, and they're well on their way. Uh, uh, and uh, hopefully some uh, great stuff to come for them. Uh, but OldSchoolShirts.com is uh, a great place for high-quality, distressed-looking uh, uh, T-shirts uh, from not only teams and leagues of of the past. Uh, and and by golly, there's uh, there's all kinds of stuff there in in places in sports like uh, hockey and basketball and baseball. You're going to find a lot of great teams and old logos and uh, and uh, even leagues uh, uh, memorialized in great uh, classic T-shirt fashion. Uh, but uh, interestingly, as we talk about Seattle, uh, you won't find any Seattle supersonic stuff there at OldSchoolShirts.com. Uh, you know, that's uh, messy. It's licensable. It's NBA owned and that kind of stuff. But what you will find there 
uh, as well as those other teams, is a great assemblage of T-shirts uh, devoted to uh, all kinds of Seattle uh, uh, history, uh, not only in sports. Uh, there's a Seattle Sea Dogs CISL soccer shirt in there. Uh, you got uh, Seattle uh, Rainiers a shirt in there, but also some really cool stuff like uh, uh, previous and frankly, even still existing uh, cool places like Farrell's Ice Cream Parlor and uh, Sunset Bowl. Uh, Scroochies is uh, memorialized in T-shirt fashion there. Um, the old Cellophane Square uh, shirt uh, is there for, uh, memor- memorializing uh, the, that uh, that great place where you could buy and sell and trade uh, a video and all kinds of stuff. The Kingdome and uh, Six Stadium, they're, they're all there. KYAC, uh, you know, all kinds of radio. There are all kinds of cool uh, uh, cultural uh, trove of uh, treasures there, he says. Uh, at OldSchoolShirts.com, just click on the Seattle link and you're going to see all kinds of great uh, stuff there uh, at uh, at OldSchoolShirts.com. And when you go there and you find a shirt that you love, by all means, please use your promo code GOODSEATS, will you? And get 10% off all of your purchases. If you want to find that, you want to get that Fun Forest Seattle Center shirt uh, to to fund for the whole family, go for it. It's all there. Frederick and Nelson, uh, Bobo, the pride of Seattle. uh, It's all there, all in the Seattle section of OldSchoolShirts.com. And make sure you use that promo code GOODSEATS and you will get, uh, courtesy of us, uh, 10% off all of your purchases. That's oldschoolshirts.com. And we thank P.F. Wilson and his friends there in Seattle uh, for their sponsorship of the show. And we thank you for listening uh, further for our great conversation with Jason Reed and Adam Brown as we talk about Sonics Gate and the Seattle Supersonics uh, past and perhaps maybe future uh, in our conversation that we had just a couple of uh, weeks ago. Enjoy. You know, I can't think of a more dramatic and perhaps a little bit more modern uh, story, I guess, uh, relative to all the other uh, conversations and explorations that we found in in, in soccer and basketball and hockey, et cetera, football, lots of football, uh, than this Sonic story. And, you know, I remember, uh, God, when when did the movie Sonic's Gate uh, originally come out? Because I think I remember watching it on one of the ESPN networks, maybe about, what, 10 years ago, maybe less than that. It originally came out in 2009 in October. Um, and then it basically, that was our free online release. And then at the end of 2011, CNBC hit us up and they um, wanted to do the North American broadcast rights for it. So we re-edited the film and made it available for TV. It was on CNBC for a year. And then when that deal went up, we signed a three-year deal with ESPN. Uh, to have it air on classic, and they probably aired it like hundreds of times during that time. All right. Well, so so let's go back in time then, because uh, before we sort of get into the Sonics sort of story, and obviously they had a, a quite a an interesting and and uh, uh, eventful history prior to uh, the bulk of what your your movie uh, uh, circles around, which is interesting because as we'll get to, it's newly relevant uh, in today's modern times. Um, Give us a sense, give our audience a sense of who you guys are, what you guys do for a living, and 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 frankly, why uh, this opus on the Sonics and their messy divorce from the city of Seattle. Uh, I, I got to think it comes from some initial grounding as being pure fans of the team and or the NBA. I mean, yeah, yeah, we're like 
lifelong Sonic fans, lifelong uh, citizens of Seattle living here in the Northwest. And um, at that time, I was, uh, you know, just getting into filmmaking in my early years. And um, I would just saw what was happening. It was clear as day once Howard Schultz sold to OKC that those guys were going to try to move the team. And I just started recording press conferences and things on on the air where everyone was saying that, hey, we're going to try to keep the team there just in just in case, you know, like they move the team and be like, hey, these guys are lying to us. And um, when they actually did move the team, obviously, we were just totally devastated being like Sonic fans. But that's when Adam and I connected and um, we decided to make the film Sonic Skate along with a couple of the other guys on our team who were also Sonic fans. And we are all working on uh, film projects and things like that. And it just became a no brainer. And so we went just kind of crazy over the course of five months and just shot and edited the whole thing. And rather than go the normal route of film festivals and trying to get it out for distribution, we literally just like released it. We had two premieres in Seattle, sold out premieres and dropped it online and just tried to blow it up as much as possible. And it did kind of go viral. And in the early days of feature length stuff on the internet for free, it really was, you know, big success and ended up winning the Webby Award for Best Sports Film in 2010. We definitely were rooted as fans first and foremost. You know, we grew up as Sonics fans and of course we support all the local teams, you know, big Seahawks fans as well. Uh, but the Sonics had this sort of lifeblood of Seattle the way that other teams didn't. And, you know, they were the first uh, major team to win a championship in 1979. You know, it really went back generations, and Seattle is a basketball city when you look at all the, the NBA talent that was produced coming out of the Seattle area, uh, you know, all the, all the current players and players over the decades. So it was really just, uh, it felt like our hearts were ripped out when first we heard that Schultz was uh, going to sell the team to Clay Bennett, who everybody knew was from Oklahoma, and I started volunteering for the Save Our Sonics organization, you know, doing press stuff. I had a journalism background. I uh, was pretty young and fresh out of college at the time. And uh, that was when I met Jason at some Save Our Sonics events. And he was just this crazy guy with a camera. And uh, we decided to, after the team left, you know, we just decided, okay, this is too much of a story to not be told properly in, in documentary form. And uh, we just kind of went went nuts from there, along with our uh, our co-conspirators, you know, uh, Colin Baxter, Darren Lund, Colin White are the other core members of the team. And then, you know, dozens and dozens, if not hundreds of other people in the community who chipped in with music and uh, resources and photos and contacts, you know, really the whole community came together behind the project. And uh, that was pretty unique for a film project to sort of galvanize. Uh, around this this team that was here for 41 years, you know, so uh, it was definitely not taken lightly. And, and but we went into it just sort of as fans thinking that the story had to be told. And, and here we are 10 years later, people are still seeing it for the first time. So what what year around uh, was your collective uh, fandom? I, I don't know if you guys are the same age. You sound sort of similar. But uh, w what years, I guess, did you sort of uh, uh, become sort of Sonics fans, and I'm guessing it was sort of in your childhoods, uh, which tends to be kind of a theme in this this show. Uh, absolutely, yeah. It was our childhoods. We're, we're a few years uh, different. Uh, we're very close in age, but um, so it's the late 80s and early 90s Sonics team, so uh, that, that was definitely the time when 
we sort of were, uh, you know, kids watching the the NBA for the first time and becoming big Sonics fans. Gary Payton, Sean Kemp, Della Schramm, and you know, going a little further back than that, X Man, Xavier McDaniel, and uh, some of the late '80s teams was when I first kind of started being a fan. Yeah, and I'd say mine was fairly similar. I mean, I remember Tom Chambers back in the '80s, and I was definitely more into like baseball and college football back like i'd say in the late 80s but yeah once we drafted like gary payton and sean kemp and once sean kemp was in the dunk contest and we started being like you know in the playoffs doing well with george carl as our coach in the 90s i mean that's when i turned all my allegiance for all sport to the sonics and you know even though the team you know didn't do as well after those mid-90s sonics i still maintain sort of my rabid fandom till the bitter end all right. So before we get into this sort of the, the, the meat of the of the matter here, which is what a lot of the the documentary uh, focuses on, which is sort of this period of time of the Schultz ownership and then some, um, I think it's really important. I mean, you kind of alluded to it. Um, I, I think most people forget. Now, I'm a huge soccer fan, so I remember the Sounders back in the in the 1970s, but even before and the Seattle Pilots, which we've done a couple episodes on 1969. But I think it's lost on a lot of people that uh, that that the Seattle Supersonics were the first major professional sports team in the city of Seattle back in 19, what, 67, right? The October of 67. And yep, 67. Right. And, and in Seattle at that time, right, was, you know, it was a relatively large on the West Coast city, probably the biggest city on the West Coast without really a professional major league sports franchise of any sort. So, so the NBA's movement into Seattle is, was really almost like a uh, the beginning of the opening of uh, some floodgates, so to speak, when it came to recognizing that Seattle could be and would be a fertile place for professional sports uh, via the Sonics. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, those the teams in the 70s, too. I mean, this when we first had the Mariners, like all growing up, the Seahawks and the Mariners were, were terrible. I mean, the Mariners had their their runs in the early nineties and stuff. But overall, like my memory is being like a little kid was just that those other teams were just terrible. And the Sonics at least had a recent championship and they, you know, the Sonics were really embraced, especially those cha- the championship year with guys like Jack Sigma and Lenny Wilkins and uh, Gus Williams and downtown Freddie Brown. I mean, they were like loved and embraced by this community. And I think this community had grown at, by, you know, to a certain point to deserve an NBA or a professional team. And because I think the Sonics were a success, you know, we pretty quickly thereafter got, the Mariners and um, the Seahawks here. And and like you said, the Sounders, one of my early video production gigs was actually like uh, the company I was working for had the rights to all those early Sounders, 70s and 80s Sounders teams um, when they were playing Pele's New York teams and stuff. And yeah, there's a rich history of sports fans here in this area. Yeah, it feels to me, though, that Seattle and having lived in Seattle for a year and a half myself and in a previous life about a decade and a half ago, um, you know, it, it still has a sort of a, uh, you know, a, a cultural sort of, um, I don't know, smallness to it, a, a sort of a community-esque uh, kind of thing to it. I don't want to call it a small town by any means, but, you know, I, I would imagine that certainly in the 60s and 70s as this team, you know, basically became kind of the first and the first sort of professional love of this, uh, you know, for this for this city, right, really it, it was it was warmly embraced and almost to, to the point of it being sort of like Seattle's true home team and almost like a family kind of a, a, a feeling, I guess, to it. Absolutely. I, I think, you know, 
it's hard to put your finger on it, you know, now that the team has been gone for uh, 10 years now, but it really was Seattle's first love in terms of the sports landscape, you know. Now now with the Seahawks having won a Super Bowl, that's certainly occupying, you know, that top spot with the Sonics being gone, but man, the the Sonics in the 90s in particular, certainly from my memory, was it was, you know, the town would stop during the playoffs. That's all anyone would talk about. And, you know, just having those games, you know, Seattle is a, it's a rainy city during those uh, long winter months and you, you don't have a whole lot to do outside. And so you'd look forward to that Tuesday night game uh, or, you know, just in any regular season game, it really brought the whole city together. And uh, it, it really, you know, we miss it to this day where Jason and I are still huge NBA fans. We watch as many games as we can. We have a huge 14 team fantasy league. Uh, you know, we're still just NBA junkies. And that comes from growing up in that era and, and the Sonics just being part of our souls growing up. Uh, you know, if you'd asked me when I was 13 years old what I was going to do when I grew up, I would say I'm going to play in the NBA and I'm going to play for the Sonics. <laughs> so, uh, you know, delusions aside, uh, that, that was just like what the city, you know, is as much as part of the city as Kurt Cobain or Jimi Hendrix or, you know, any of the other cultural institutions that you think of with Seattle, coffee, technology, computers, you know, all these things. And the Sonics were right there. You know, we hear all the time, uh, having done a lot of these interviews uh, with people worldwide, you know, people in Italy that say, oh, Seattle, you know, Kurt Cobain and Gary Payton. Or, you know, it's the, it the first thing that people say is the Sonics. And, and you still see people wearing the jerseys everywhere you go. And, uh, you know, it's pretty amazing that despite the way the team was unceremoniously ripped out away from us, that that still sticks with us. And you still just have that as part of the culture here, almost as if the team is still in Seattle. So uh, we're pretty optimistic. Well, I know we'll get into the sort of modern era and politics questions, but uh, we're optimistic that, you know, the soul of Seattle basketball is still here and uh, everyone here is still, you know, fighting to bring a team back. So I, I was actually when I, w- I was actually living in Seattle during uh, the um, uh, the 95, 96 season, which ironically was the franchise's uh, ever best. Uh, I think they won 64 games that year and and went all the way to the finals that year against the Bulls. I went to a couple of games at the key arena and I was impressed by how. Um, uh, intimate that that arena was uh, large, but not so large, right? Uh, and um, uh, also was my first taste of uh, of hearing the uh, dulcet tones of Kevin Calabro calling the games uh, on the radio as well. So it was really it, it really got a sort of special feel that this was sort of truly Seattle's uh, hometown team. But let let's get into sort of the prelude, shall we say, of uh, of what we're going to talk about, which is the uh, uh, the Howard Schultz uh, ownership, which came. Uh, in the uh, in the aughts, but maybe you can kind of set the scene for our audience a little bit as sort of what was give us a sense of the team, you know, uh, around that sort of mid to late 1990s, you know, obviously a, a pretty successful run, almost matching uh, some of the highest successes of the uh, late 70s when uh, the Sonics had won their first uh, uh, championship. Um, what you know, clearly riding on a high in the in the mid to late 1990s, but it kind of sort of went uh, in a ditch uh, pretty shortly thereafter, right? Uh, it was an interesting. You know, we we refer to it as the perfect storm 
in the in the movie in that there was a lot of circumstances that had to come together for this team to leave Seattle after 41 years and all the success that they had. So in the 90s, you know, if you look at NBA playoff records and, and win-loss records, the Sonics were one of the best teams in the NBA all the way through the 90s. Uh, and then in the late 90s, you know, they had traded Sean Kemp. Uh, Vin Baker was not quite the player that, you know, you needed to anchor a, a contending championship team. Uh, the NBA went through some interesting changes in terms of its business model. You had the strike-shortened season of 1999 with the lockout. And a lot of people sort of view that, you know, as a, as a bit of a downtime in the NBA, the late 90s, early 2000s, while they were figuring out the, uh, the new collective bargaining agreement. Howard Schultz bought the team. And, you know, there was a lot of optimism around that because he was, you know, a big Starbucks guy with with a lot of resources um and so he you know people thought that would revitalize the team and inject a little more uh you know resources and and just the ability to get good free agents he was talking a big game about five-year plan to win a championship and uh you know so there was a lot of optimism there um, but it was also a time where the nba started sort of struggling financially and a lot of these arenas that got the got it done in the 90s were starting to become obsolete with the new nba business model that relied increasingly on not only ticket sales and tv revenue but uh sort of like restaurants and non-basketball revenue so uh key arena was built in 1995 same year as the Chicago's United Center and Key Arena was basically obsolete, you know, within a couple of years. If you look at the next wave of NBA arenas that were built with double the square footage, which meant more restaurants, more ways to generate revenue outside of ticket sales. So that combined with the fact that the uh, the Key Arena lease was a backloaded lease, meaning that the team's obligations to pay the city increased as the uh, lease went on. Uh, the team also, you know, was selling out games all through the 90s. But as they became less competitive, uh, ticket prices, you know, it, it was no longer a sellout every single game. And uh, so there was a lot of, you know, sort of a perfect storm of financial circumstances that led to this sort of downtime that where Schultz started saying, I'm losing money. I need a new arena, uh, even though the key arena was less than 10 years old at that time. Uh, I'm sure Jason has some other insights there, too, but that, that sort of sets the scene of the late 90s. Well, just the only thing I clarify is, you know, the arena was originally built for the World's Fair in 1962, and uh, it got renovated in 1995, but it was done fairly fairly on the cheap, especially when you're looking at price tags for the other arenas, under $100 million. And so it was it was a little bit more of a Band-Aid than a full rebuild. And, and in that meantime, we built CenturyLink Field and – um, Safeco Field, which were each a half a billion dollars and were also kind of heavily contentious um, taxpayer finance arenas. Uh, and there was a lot of backlash. So the key arena did get a remodel and then we built these other two arenas. And so by the time Howard Schultz came back asking for money, it was basically like the city had, you know, sorry, the state had spent over a billion dollars on arenas in the last decade and they didn't. You know, the people were kind of had had enough at that point. Well, you know, that's interesting because that certainly goes back to uh, even dating back to the uh, the pilots. Right. So 
you know, in our previous uh, conversations around that team with a bunch more to come, I think, um, you know, there are a lot of the I think the original promise of the pilots actually uh, starting in 69 was this assumption that there was going to be a new stadium built. And I think that's around the first time where this uh, idea of a dome stadium uh, was actually put into into motion. But it kind of veered back and forth and, and sideways and then some uh, with the political landscape in Seattle. And, and obviously it, that dragged on and, and finally came about in 76 when it opened. And obviously the Mariners came then thereafter. But uh, I, I get the sense that Seattle and uh, public financed uh, uh, stadia uh, has not necessarily been the uh, easiest of uh, of relationships over the years in which I guess uh, the Sonics and the Key Arena folks uh, found themselves. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, and there was also contentiousness with the Key Arena renovation plan because originally there was talk of putting the basketball arena and having it be NHL ready and having it be next to um, the Kingdom, which is where currently century link field um sits but and we couldn't get into this in the movie not even in the four hour cut and there wasn't a lot of details available but essentially the Ackerleys ended up deciding to do it at key arena more on the on the cheap because they couldn't get the deal that they wanted down there adam may have more to that story than me but that's sort of the long story short and so there's all you know and then you look at the last decade since the sonics left i mean we have had battle after political battle here locally to try to figure out a solution that can attract the nba and the sonics back to seattle and that's just been more um more of the same kind of resistance and stuff. So, yeah, I would say that's a pretty safe thing to say. That, But in the meantime, we have funded multiple arenas and have really nice stadiums for basketball and football. Or, sorry, for baseball and football. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a tricky thing because people believe that these sports teams are good things and they do bring benefits to the community. But the question is, should public dollars be used to build stadiums? And in the 90s, the answer to that was largely yes. A lot of cities were spending public tax money to build stadiums that then would host the teams and uh, you know increase business and revenue for the city uh, and you know cultural value and all those things. But th- this was a, a booming time in the 90s when the Seahawks and Mariners both got their own new stadiums. And those were very contentious battles. You know, we almost lost before we lost the Sonics. We almost lost the Seahawks and we almost lost the Mariners. Uh, you know, some people in political pundits would have said that those teams were as good as gone uh, before sort of miraculous circumstances came about to rescue them. You know, in the case of the Mariners, it was the miracle 1995 season with Edgar Martinez and Ken Griffey Jr. and Randy Johnson making that improbable playoff run uh, that, you know, took the city by storm and ultimately led the politicians to change their mind and approve the new stadium for them. And for the Seahawks, uh, you know, Ken Baring had the team all but moved to California and uh, they were going to have the moving trucks loaded up and Paul Allen came in and, and saved the day there and bought the team and kept them here. You know, RIP Paul Allen, a great man who's contributed a lot to the city. So uh, there, there was a lot of baggage there in terms of the, the voter base and a lot of people felt burned by the public tax burden that went into those other two stadiums. And also the economics changed, you know, when, uh, when Schultz started asking for 
uh, more public money. It was not the boom time of the 90s. It was a little more people were starting to tighten their belts and uh, it was a different landscape financially. So uh, there were a lot of circumstances that sort of combined there. Also, you know, as we'll get into, Schultz just completely did not play the political game properly. You know, he did. He sort of went expecting a handout from the legislature when he didn't get it right away. He sort of pouted and took his ball and went home. And, uh, you know, him, he and David Stern were expecting uh, the legislators to just kiss the ring and give them whatever they wanted. And when that didn't happen, they sort of spitefully used their power to you know, burn everybody involved and especially the fans. So, um, you know, you can't can't get a stadium approved in one try with a team that's not that competitive. You know, you need to prove that you're here for the long haul. You're going to put a competitive product on the court. You're valuing the public trust and the cultural value of this team to the community. And, uh, you know, Schultz just failed on all those fronts. And it's why you know, uh, we all view him as public enemy number one in the Sonics case saga. And especially interesting given uh, his uh, his political uh, leanings and uh, presidential uh, run. We'll get to that in a minute. Um, but maybe before we get to Schultz specifically, um, could we maybe just step back one uh, moment and talk about uh, Barry Ackerley, right? He's the owner uh, prior to Schultz. Uh, who owned the team mostly uh, through most of the 80s and certainly all of the 90s. Uh, any little background uh, uh, anecdote or story about uh, Ackerley and and perhaps maybe leading up to why uh, he looked to sell and ultimately successfully so the team to Schultz in the first place in 2001? Barry Ackerley, I think, was like, kind of like a player's owner in the sense that, you know, like Gary Payton would refer to him as like family, you know, it was, it wasn't like a owner player relationship as much as it was like kind of a family or a team or whatever. And he was a guy who made his money. Like he had billboards around town and other sort of local business interests. He wasn't like one of these like billionaire guys, I don't think, but he, you know, was a community guy who had success. And I think he was the second owner um, of the team after the original owner, Sam Shulman. And I think um, it's probably one of those things where, I think the key arena lease is probably part of it. He's like, Hey, listen, you know, this is going to like, we don't have that much money. And like, I think he honestly felt that selling to Schultz and the basketball club of Seattle, his group of over 50 local owners, I think he felt like it was a safe, a safe steward for the team. And I think the timing was probably right for him with his age and stuff to get out. I don't know if he officially ever said exactly why, but I don't think he would have done it to, I don't think he would have ever sold to like a group of out of town investors who would move the team. He specifically sold to a guy like Howard Schultz and a team of local leaders that he believed would keep the team here forever. And so, but yeah, I mean, I know that like Gary Payton in particular speaks of him you know, very, very fondly. And he, he, you know, once Howard Schultz got here, Howard Schultz sort of wasn't a player's owner. He was a, uh, an owner that sort of clashed with the culture of the NBA and who better to represent the, the culture of the NBA didn't like than Gary Payton, the ultimate trash talking, like hard nosed basketball player um, who backed down from nobody and who d- did have a big ego and Schultz has a big ego. And that's just Gary. That's part of what makes Gary Payton a great athlete is that he would not back down from anyone on the basketball court. So, 
but I, yeah, I think that Barry Ackerley was, you know, was fairly loved. And yeah, you know, there, I'm sure there's negatives you could say, but not nearly as many negatives as you could say about Howard Schultz and the way he handled his ownership. Yeah, but but Ackerley was kind of ogling for a new arena too, though, right? During his uh, during his ownership, right? I, I got the sound like at Bellevue, I know was in play for a while, and it, it seemed like, and I guess the team was also playing. A, no, a number of years in the late 70s, early 80s in the Kingdome as well, uh, or instead of Key Arena. So I, I get the sense that uh, he knew, too, that this arena uh, reconstituted or re- rehabbed or whatever uh, was not ultimately going to be uh, the place for him to be ultimately well, successful with the team. That, that's what I was saying, though. Like, he, he was trying to build, like, a brand new arena that was more down um, in the south end by where the Kingdome was. And I think that he did realize it needed to be sort of a new arena. And when that didn't work out, they put the Band-Aid on, on Key Arena. And, yeah, the lease was not going to get as good. And at the end of the lease, the arena ultimately wasn't fitting what the new model was for the NBA. And he probably just didn't want to fight that battle, you know. <laughs> um, and I think Schultz maybe got into it, like, naively, not even – I mean, I'm sure he knew the specifics of the lease and stuff, but I think he probably – I don't know, just got into it, not worrying about it. And ultimately, both those guys shouldn't have worried about the lease being bad or whatever because the team's worth $1.3 billion now. And if it was in Seattle instead of Oklahoma City, it'd probably be worth closer to $2 billion. So, um, you know, like it can lose money at the time, but it still is increasing in valuation over time. So, yeah, my, my sense is he was he was also interested in in possibly, you know, trying to attract an NHL team as well, which is ironic, of course, and we'll get into. Well, so what why do you think why do you think he ultimately accurately sold the team in 2001? Like what what was sort of going on specifically then? Had he had just enough or was he getting older? Was it, a, you know, was his family not interested in carrying on? What were the motivations that you could tell? Uh, maybe he just saw the valuation and he felt it was a good business deal to get out or uh, other circumstances. I think, I think that he just saw the writing on the wall. You know, he, they, they had this key arena lease that was getting worse and worse by the year. You had the NBA business model changing. So, uh, it was more reliant on having these big, vast open, you know, huge square footage arenas to generate additional revenue. Uh, there was also just a, a huge boom in player salaries in the late 90s. And so, you know, the NBA is doing great now in the current collective bargaining agreement. But you couldn't really say that back in the late 90s and early 2000s uh, in terms of the revenue sharing and the ways the TV deals worked. You know, there just weren't as many uh, slices of the pie available. So in my opinion, Ackerley just saw the writing on the wall and saw, hey, we we're behind the eight ball here. There's no no support for, you know, public funding of a brand new arena. We got this Key Arena deal, which, you know, Key Arena is a, a beautiful place to watch a basketball game, but it just didn't have all those additional revenue streams. And uh, I think that he just said, you know, rather than do this fight and, and, you know, lobby for a new arena and do all this stuff, I think he just saw that it was time to get out. Uh, and certainly, you know, Schultz, knew what he was getting into when he bought the team. Uh, so there's no real excuse there, in my opinion, as well. You know, he knew he went to the legislature claiming losses of 14 million a year. 
but, you know, he knew the way that lease was structured and all he did was poison the well with politicians and and uh, make things worse. So, you know, I think accurately, certainly, you know, if you read, go back and read, you know, the Seattle Times and Steve Kelly columns and all this stuff, you know, people were critical of the Ackerleys as owners at the time. But sort of in hindsight, you know, uh, we all appreciate them a lot in terms of not only the ways that they, you know, helped the community and were very, you know, positive figures in the community, but also the glory years of the basketball product that they put together was one of the most special times in NBA history uh, here watching the Sonics in the 90s. Kevin Calabro, as you mentioned, I mean, it really was just a beautiful time. So I think Ackerley, you know, definitely like in hindsight, people, people appreciated what a good owner he was. And uh, yeah, like I said, I, I think he just saw the writing on the wall and the economics and didn't want to fight uh, against politicians anymore. So let's then get into uh, uh, this Howard Schultz character, OK, because um, it seems to me like you're sort of table setting here a bit that, you know, the NBA is sort of in this, uh, uh, you know, leveraging mode into, you know, maybe sort of the the smaller owner kind of model and the and the, you know, previous generation of arena into sort of this next level of, you know, uh, let's say billionaire owner and, you know, uh, multiple revenue streams and gigantic sort of playing palaces. And, you know, as, as a lot of, you know, uh, pro sports in the, in the last 20 or so years has become, right. It's become, you know, mega big bucks and, and the bigger sort of uh, financial expectations. Um, You know, clearly somebody like Howard Schultz, right. Founder and, and CEO of a, of a you know the the probably the biggest uh, a food related company on the planet maybe next to McDonald's or maybe even surpassing it at this point um you know seems like the right kind of central casting character uh locally uh, owned and uh, and grown so to speak uh you know to sort of exit from stage left to you know maybe be that guy in Seattle to take this team to that proverbial next level as the NBA was going so a little bit about Howard Schultz, why he would be even in, in, interested in this, uh, to, to what you could surmise from what you learned in, in putting this documentary together. Well, I mean, I think he, you know, is a guy that does have a big ego and owning one of these 30 assets that there's only 30 of in the town that you, you've sort of adopted as your own. Like you said, central casting, it just fit like it fit for him if he was maybe at that time wanting to do something extra i know his kids are big basketball fans maybe he was a big basketball fan but he and he saw people at that point i think at that point mark cuban was kind of on the scene and it was it was kind of becoming this like i guess status symbol or whatever and he you know wasn't one of these owners that hit away in the owner's box he was sitting courtside like cheering he you know i think he viewed himself as literally sort of like part of the team so i think it was like an ego thing and also just like probably a a fun thing for him to do and he he had enough money to do it and i think also there i don't know i'm not i'm not really sure adam do you have something else to chime in on there um yeah i mean so howard thought that he could change the culture of the NBA. He had had so much success with Starbucks and sort of reinventing the world of coffee and the way, you know, people perceive that. And he had so much success with the brand and uh, he had become sort of this cult figure hero uh, in that world. And he wanted to be, and, and he even said, you know, he wanted to 
bring that success to the NBA and change the culture. So the only problem is that NBA players are not employees in the same way that a barista or, you know, other people who work for Howard might be. So, you know, there were clashes between Howard and members of the team, particularly Gary Payton. And Gary didn't like when people told him what to do. And uh, they had a big public spat in the media over Gary holding out uh, because he wanted a new contract. And Howard, this was sort of typified the sort of culture that Howard wanted to change about the NBA. You know, he didn't like uh, the way that the players were acting and sort of, you know, big money. And, um, you know, it was a a clash of cultures. And Howard thought that he could use his sort of uh, cult leader aspects that were successful in Starbucks and, and, you know, bring that to the NBA locker room. Um, It couldn't have backfired more. So... You know, he very quickly lost Gary Payton, your star player. You're feuding with him in the media. You're feuding with the politicians regarding the lease, saying, I need this lease that I knowingly signed up for is so bad. I need a new lease. I need a restructure. I need a new arena. You know, all this without even really putting a championship contending team on the court. It, it, it really just soured so quickly. Uh, you know, when, when Howard first bought the team, he did say all the right things, you know, public trust. I view this as a public trust. I'm going to bring a championship in five years. And uh, very quickly, he proved that, he, you know, the things, the, the lessons that he was trying to apply from his success at Starbucks were not working in the NBA, particularly the, the culture of the players that he was trying to mold and d- did not want to be molded in his image so uh it, it was pretty brutal and, and things turned sour very fast and became toxic uh you know within the first couple years of howard owning the team all right we're going to take a quick brief pause and uh we want to remind you that our friends at audible uh are offering to you our listeners an opportunity to get a free audiobook download uh, from their amazing array of over 190,000 titles to choose from. Uh, when you go to audibletrial.com slash goodseats, and that's the place to go to get your free audiobook download, courtesy of us and Audible. Uh, and uh, it's uh, something you can cancel at any time, and you can uh, keep the book for as long as your device uh, exists. And like I said before, there's just a ton of choices uh, available to you to burn up that free credit, uh, including a bunch in the realm of our forgotten sports little genre here, uh, including uh, in the realm of basketball. If you fancy yourself a fan of the old ABA, for example, uh, two great books on the great Julia Serving that might be uh, worth uh, uh, using your credit for. One, of course, is the uh, uh, the rise and rise of Julia Serving. It's called Doc. And it's written by Vincent Malazzi and uh, narrated by David Cromet. You could use your credit for that book. Uh, and it's a great sort of uh, interview uh, style uh, uh, background on the uh, life and times of Dr. J uh, from uh, from all sides. Uh, but if that's not good enough for you, why not try the autobiography? It's called Dr. J, the autobiography, of course. It's written by Dr. J in, in concert with uh, Carl Greenfeld. And it's narrated by Dr. J himself, Julius Irving. 
Uh, and uh, you could use your credit for that book, as well as, like I said, thousands and thousands of other books, not just only in basketball and basketball history, but in a whole host of genres and topics. By all means, give them a try. Why don't you? It's risk-free, for God's sakes. Audibletrial.com slash goodseats. Yes, audibletrial.com slash goodseats. That's the link. Uh, and that's where you're going to get your free audiobook download. Again, you can cancel at any time. And once you do download that book for free, and uh, after you cancel it, if you if you choose to do that, it's yours to keep. So you can enjoy uh, in perpetuity for as long as your device lives. Uh, they download a book free and gratis, courtesy of uh, yours truly here at Good Seats Still Available and our friends at Audible. Thank you, Audible. We appreciate it. And uh, we appreciate you uh, joining our conversation once again. sense of of what those years were like uh, i mean obviously the gary payton thing was is, it was a huge uh, pr and uh, probably just divisive within the team uh uh you know a fiasco frankly um you know obviously the team was was relatively mediocre uh it certainly had its blip in 2005 perhaps a little little too little too late uh, in terms of uh, competitiveness on, a, on an ongoing basis but um what do you think it was about schultz and his management uh, I mean, was it a, a a lack of understanding about what kind of talent was needed? Uh, was it naivete about this uh, this arena situation? I mean, I can't imagine he would be completely naive given uh, some of the moves and the uh, uh, the machinations that uh, accurately at least had gone through uh, with that recognition of, of the key arena and its perhaps its limitations going forward. I, I mean, what specifically that you can recall or from what you learned in putting this documentary together, what were some of the pieces that sort of just made it toxic so quickly, both on and off the court? Well, I think he thought that he could work through the arena stuff. He's like, oh, OK, well, I'm a skilled negotiator or whatever. I can, you know, I can work through this stuff in the same way that Adam, like Adam was saying, he thought he could come in and inspire these guys to act like his baristas and kind of, you know, adopt his culture. I mean, I do think part of the problem was personnel for sure. I mean, you traded Gary Payton and it was nice because we got Ray Allen back and Ray Allen was like an absolute joy to sort of watch as a player, but they never, you know, Richard Lewis was our other sort of big name guy who wasn't ever really that good. And they kept trying to find the center, you know, and trying to find, they drafted a lot of, you know, and I don't know if this is specifically, but they drafted a lot of sort of nice guy. You know, we used to have like a lot of tough, hard nosed guys, but we drafted Nick Collison, Luke Rindauer, who are good players and stuff, you know, solid fundamental guys like what Howard Schultz wanted, but they weren't, they weren't going after the talent, you know, the two to three big name superstars to make us truly competitive. And, um, you know, and, and I think that as the team started losing money on paper, like Adam was saying, 14 million a year, it gave them more of a justification to not have a luxury tax and not pick up, you know, these big name guys. So our team was sort of mediocre and that 2004, 2005 season was awesome. I know like we all loved watching that and we far exceeded expectations going to the semifinals and taking San Antonio to six games, but you know, it wasn't really like sustainable. And, and that was right when things were heating up with Schultz getting into various feuds with both the state legislature and the city government, both the mayor and the city council. So he was kind of like, you know, feuding with everyone. And he came in sort of on his high horse. And I think he expected that 
you know, you guys should realize I'm losing money every year on this. So you should help do something for me because I'm doing this as a public trust. And so if you don't do that, though, I may have to sell the team. Meanwhile, Howard Schultz has plenty of money, like to be able to handle those losses or whatever. But, you know, I mean, <laughs> I don't know. So that there's a lot of different avenues going on there was the player feuding there was the government feuding there was the overall just like lack of being able to build a winning team so if i have this right right the, the key arena was uh well, it was remodeled in 95 or so and and at the time i guess was was then uh the smallest venue in the nba it was about seventeen thousand or so right and uh, it, it's my understanding that schultz is one of his kind of his first most immediate well maybe it wasn't immediate or maybe maybe uh you know, it took him a, a season uh, of of operations to kind of sort of get to this. Was this idea of uh, uh, working towards expanding Key Arena? That was sort of the goal, right? It wasn't another stadium somewhere else, from what I can tell. Uh, but it almost feels like that that was sort of his linchpin for ongoing success uh, was to get basically some form of new arena. In this case, uh, a more modernized. Uh, even since '95, a version expansion of Key Arena. Is that right? A more, yeah, a more extensive remodel. You know, so I think he was proposing 218 million, 200 million of which the government would pay for, and 18 million which would be a private con- contribution. And by the time he'd sold the team to Bennett, and Bennett was exploring the Renton option, the price for that same or similar remodel had gone up to 300 million. You know, and now you look at what's going on at Key Arena. They're spending eight hundred plus million on a remodel now, so <laughs> which is happening. <laughs> yeah, it definitely. Uh, you know, Schultz wanted that remodel, but he wasn't willing to pay for it. That that really uh, shows how the people's perspectives on the public funding have changed. You know, now people aren't even willing to entertain any public money going towards it. But this, you know, Sonicsgate really did mark sort of a shift in what people's attitudes were towards that. And, you know, Steve Ballmer came in and tried to save the team and tried to uh, buy it from Clay Bennett, who wasn't willing to sell, but Ballmer was going to put up $150 million out of a $300 million uh, remodel, uh, which at the time was seen as just a, a mind-blowingly good deal, a 50-50 public-private partnership. And so now here we are 10 years later and like uh, basically it has to be all private to even fly. So I think, you know, people's attitude towards public money has changed and um, Schultz just wanted that handout. He really thought that he deserved this. And how could you not, you know, give me what I'm asking for right away? And uh, it really became personal very fast between Howard Schultz and Frank Chop, the Speaker of the House, who sort of controlled you know, the the party leadership on that issue at the legislature. What, what was the animus, though? Was there personal animus towards Schultz? Uh, was it Schultz's style? I think you alluded to maybe some of that being the case. Uh, was it a mixture of the two or was it was it largely well, Schultz's, you know, indifference or not indifference is intransigence? 
Yeah, I think it was all of those things. I mean, there you got to keep in mind there was a lot of baggage from the Seahawks and Mariners stadium deals, which people were just fresh, you know, fed up with that. And and you know, even though everyone's happy with those buildings and and happy to have those teams here, you know, the ultimately the public voted against those deals and didn't want, you know, about fifty percent of the public didn't want those deals to happen. So uh, as the economic downturn happened. Uh, after that, in the early 2000s, uh, the city of Seattle passed a measure called I-91, which simply stated any public money that goes into sports arenas must get an equal return in value back, which basically meant that all of those deals that um, the, the prior deals of, you know, 90 percent public money, 10 percent private were not going to fly. And that, you know, sort of the bare minimum was this Steve Ballmer, 150 million, 150 million, 50, 50 deal. So, yeah, so it was that baggage from the previous stadiums. And you also had Schultz's attitude. He came in as sort of this big shot. Uh, right away, you see it today in his political campaigning, this sort of like squirmy, uncomfortable, how dare you criticize me? How dare you ask me that? I'm the American dream. I am the cult leader. You need to buy into my cult. Uh, you know, he sort of just had this attitude like you need to get on my train or, or get the hell out. So, uh, you know, people did not like that. And, you know, we, we have those some of those clips of him at the legislature uh, talking about a, we're on a collision course with time and, uh, you know, crying foul because he was losing 14 million a year, even though the team value was going up every year. Uh, and he ultimately sold for a big profit. So, uh, you know, it was just seen as very disingenuous and people had no tolerance for it in the wake of the other two stadium deals. That's interesting. Okay. So at what point then in this five-year ownership, uh, 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 odyssey of his does the notion uh privately and publicly of selling the team come about uh because it seems like he talked to lots of entities uh i'm just wondering how quickly that surfaced after his owner is uh, purchase of the team uh and how quickly that might have gotten out into the i can't imagine it wasn't a secret for too long that he was talking to groups from places like Las Vegas and Kansas City and Anaheim and San Jose and and Vegas and uh, apparently other places then Oklahoma City eventually. You know, I mean, it was it was rumored, but it was basically overnight. Is that what you're going to say, Rich, sir? Go ahead. Well, I mean, yeah, I was just going to say that, like, it was really out of nowhere. There was, like, semi-veiled threats from both Stern and Schultz that, hey, you know, just so you know, we may have to consider – uh, we don't want to have to do that, but we are on a collision course with time and we may have to consider other options if we can't get what we need. But it was never like we're going to move the team away or we're going to sell the team to out of town investors. It was more like, you know, some vague threats. But, you know, really, by the, no, no one was like anticipating a sale when it happened. He wasn't like publicly out soliciting investors. There were super, super small little leaks of things but nothing that like warranted and there wasn't really social media like it is now in terms of like spreading that those kind of rumors as quickly so yeah it was pretty much overnight i mean there were rumors that 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 might be happening but basically when schultz called the press conference to announce that he was selling the team they had all these balloons at the team facility if you ask local media it was the most 
disingenuous, disgusting farce they've ever been a part of. They came, you know, showed up to the press conference. It looked like a celebration with all these balloons and everything. And everyone just knew that as soon as Clay Bennett was announced as the recipient of the team, that that spelled almost sure doom for the Sonics in Seattle. Uh, so it, it basically was announced overnight and, and, you know, he pulled the rug out. That's why, you know, people say that he took his ball and went home and just, uh, he wasn't willing to stick it out. The Sonics had two more years on the lease. He had two more years to figure out, you know, how to make this deal work with the legislature and go play politics and, you know, go, you know, uh, do the things that you need to do to be successful in that realm. And he just, had no patience for it, didn't get what he wanted right away, and basically sold the team away in the dead of night. Uh, there was no public announcement like, hey, I'm going to sell the team and listen to local buyers. There was only the announcement that the team has been sold. And, uh, you know, there were other rumored buyers. One of the one of the rumors is that Steve Ballmer came out and wasn't willing to pay as much as Bennett. One of the other rumors was that Larry Ellison was going to buy the team, but was guaranteed to move it to San Jose. But those are just rumors. You know, we don't have substantiating facts for that. And so what we do know is that, you know, what Schultz is on the record as doing and saying, and it's pretty damning in terms of his integrity. All right, I want to get to Bennett in a second, but but you did mention a name that I really want to get your pers- uh, perspective on. Because uh, he he does appear quite a bit in the in this in this film and in this story, and that's David Stern, right, the former commissioner of the NBA. I, what I don't know as as a uh, not being immediately involved in the story is how much or how little is David Stern and the NBA and the owners of such uh, involved in uh, I don't want to say pulling the strings around this story, but it seems to me that that Stern. And well, you tell me, I mean, what where was the league and Stern in particular uh, around uh, about this situation? What, what was their take and their desire, frankly, for it? Uh, you know, David Stern is certainly culpable. You know, everyone, everyone in Seattle will boo the name David Stern forever. Uh, but, you know, that's what commissioners are there for. They're there to be a lightning rod and be hated. So I think uh, Sherman Alexi in, in one of his Sonicsgate interviews that didn't make the cut of the movie said, yeah, I mean, David Stern, he's an evil, bad guy. But are you going to get mad at a great white shark for taking a bite out of your leg when you're uh, swimming in the ocean? You know, that's that's his job. So, uh, you know, David Stern at that time. Uh, was certainly pushing for all of the teams to get new arenas. And this was just not even a question to him. He said, you know, he he would go to the legislature and act very smug and say, you know, we need this new arena to keep this team in this market. And he would leverage uh, various teams against each other. and, And, you know, Seattle, since the team has left, has become the number one leveraged city to get new arenas in Sacramento, Milwaukee, Indiana, all with threats to potentially move to Seattle if they didn't, you know, play ball and build a new arena there. Um, you also have to work in the factor of uh, Hurricane Katrina had displaced the New Orleans uh, Hornets at that time, and they played a, a season and a half in Oklahoma City while uh, the stadium was being you know, refurbished and they were in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina. So Clay Bennett had sort of done David Stern a few solids 
uh, you know, by hosting that team. And it was sort of a test market for them. Uh, you also had a relationship that goes back to Bennett's uh, being a minority owner of the San Antonio Spurs and, uh, you know, doing having some good, good relationship with David Stern from that era. So when it came time to find a, a credible threat to move the Sonics, if they didn't, you know, build the, the new arena, Clay Bennett was sort of David Stern's perfect, you know, guy to step in and serve that role. So uh, if you look at the emails that are documented in Sonicsgate and were, came out during the discovery, it shows a, a very, you know, sort of cuddly relationship between those two. Uh, and it comes down to the NBA feeling that this sort of sports industrial complex is valid, you know, that they need public money to build these stadiums uh, and, and that that's a necessary part of the business model and that the owner has the right to demand that or threaten to move the team if they don't get it. So uh, Stern is certainly, you know, uh, I don't know how you would rank the villains after Schultz. Schultz is definitely number one. Um, Stern's up there too. Uh, and I think, you know, all of Seattle was glad to see him go away and, and welcomes the sort of fresh, clean slate of Adam Silver as commissioner, who seems to be a little more in tune to sort of the heartbeat of the fan base of the NBA. And, and uh, we're, so we're a little more hopeful now that Adam Silver will, you know, grant Seattle a team now that we have the key arena remodel officially approved uh, with private funding as well as another group uh, down here in Soto that's trying to build a, a stadium uh, as well. So uh, that's sort of a roundabout way to answer the question. But yes, David Stern is uh, a bad guy in all this, and uh, we're not going to let him forget it. <laughs> so it, it, it describe the Clay Bennett uh, situation then. Like, so <clears throat> upon his announcement, it's interesting, by the way, too, but parenthetically, I'm surprised Maybe not. That I wonder how much Kansas City was in the mix, right? Because that was around the time that the Sprint Center was basically being built. And I think uh, on the bet that either an NHL or an NBA or both team teams uh, would would come there. And, and ironically, there's a, it's a facility that still sits uh, bereft of a major league uh, franchise uh, in Kansas City. But so so Bennett, you know, clearly that's an interesting part of the of the dynamic here, where. You know that the New Orleans piece, the uh, you know, doing doing Stern a solid, so to speak, and in 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 keeping the uh, uh, the Hornets sort of uh, domiciled for a little while. Um, but it almost feels uh, maybe in hindsight, it was almost a fait accompli uh, that uh, the the wheels were maybe kind of uh, geared uh, in Bennett's favor, maybe from the outset, uh, once it was known that Schultz uh, wanted to sell. Yeah, I mean, I think that like Bennett. You know, and particularly Aubrey McClendon and some of the other owners had it in their heads that they were going to do this move the whole time. You know, and Howard Schultz, as a part of the sale, included this like good faith, best efforts that they will make for a year to keep the team in Seattle. And so Bennett came in. If you go back to the press conference Adam's referring to and watch it in full, I mean, Bennett's saying, like, I'm here to preserve the history of basketball in the Northwest, and I'm going to do everything I can to get an arena done here. And Howard Schultz, meanwhile, is saying, hey, I felt like having this credible th threat to move the team was the only way that, that would force the legislature and the government to act on this. Meanwhile, it just alienated everyone, including the government, particularly when you had Bennett come in. And rather than 
choose an arena like in Soto or within the city limits, he did this extensive research and decided that Renton, which is, you know, 20 minutes south of the city of Seattle without traffic, was where he wanted to build the arena, like one of the worst traffic interchanges in the entire region. And he wanted half a billion dollars and he said he might put up to a hundred million dollars into or $500 million and he might put up to a hundred million dollars in it. Meaning that the legislature wasn't being asked for a hundred million. It wasn't 200 million. It was another nearly half a billion dollars that was being asked for. And so he came in pretty disingenuously. I mean, he hired the architects, he hired the PR firms to draft up fancy proposals to go. And he went to Olympia and he pitched government, but it was a non-starter because the plan wasn't realistic and he wasn't offering any money officially. And so, you know, he was just kind of like trying to come in and swindle our community out of the team as quickly as possible while on the surface, fulfilling his obligation in the contract about making a good faith best efforts. But what happened was once the city of Seattle sued the professional basketball club, which was Clay Bennett's company, there was an email discovery phase. And in those email discovery phases, Aubrey McClendon and some of the other owners talked about, you know, moving the team, wanting to move the team to Seattle, which, you know, revealed, um, (laughs) you know, a lot about what was going on behind the scenes. And, you know, David Stern was working, with Clay Bennett to get this done, which was actually the polar opposite of how he handled the Sacramento Kings situation a year, a couple of years later, where he did everything in his power to try to keep the Kings in Sacramento. And I think a big part of that was his reputation and not wanting to have two teams, two very storied franchises moving at the end of his tenure in the NBA. And the Seattle thing became a pretty big black eye. But, but anyhow, Clay Bennett lied, bold faced lied and deceived our community. And, you know, took the team away at the first opportunity he could. Yeah, and it was really obvious to anyone who could see what was going on at that time. You know, when it came to the moves they were making, they were not giving players, uh, making them accessible for radio interviews. We drafted Kevin Durant right before that last season. You know, Seattle's only rookie of the year for the Sonics was Kevin Durant. Everyone knew Kevin Durant was a once-in-a-lifetime player at that time uh, and, and could see that he was a future star in the making and, and he would be a generational talent. And, of course, what do they do right after drafting Kevin Durant? They trade away Ray Allen uh, for peanuts to the Boston Celtics uh, You know, for future draft picks. They basically tanked and decided to rebuild in Seattle those last couple years uh, so that they could have a better – you know, slate in Oklahoma City with a bunch of high draft picks and also alienate the Seattle fan base intentionally. Uh, You know, Kevin Calabro, you know, the greatest announcer in the history of basketball, in my opinion, uh, says that the players were restricted from coming on the air and you could just see that there was no interest in building something in the Seattle community from the OKC ownership group. Uh, The only interest they had was tearing it down, making it the worst team possible, which they were the last year, a a 20 and 62 record, despite having, you know, Kevin Durant rookie of the year. Uh, The players that they brought in were just laughable, you know, late stage career. Wally Serbiak was the highest scoring player other than Kevin Durant on the team. You just had, you know, such an obvious tanking that was happening here in Seattle to alienate the fan base. And, uh, you know, those draft picks 
ended up becoming Russell Westbrook uh, and Serge Ibaka and, you know, players that Oklahoma City sort of rode their glory once they moved the team. So it was just disgusting. You know, they did all kinds of other underhanded moves. They they moved the uh, the radio broadcast, which you could always hear on 950KJR here, was a staple of Sonics basketball. They moved the radio broadcast to this right-wing conservative uh, radio station, which, you know, not a lot, not, not a lot of ears tune into here in, in liberal Seattle. And it was just really obvious that they were doing everything they could to tank the team in Seattle and move it to Oklahoma City, which was, of course, proven by the email discovery during the court case. All right. So I don't want to go through the, the court case here because it's obviously a long and winding thing. And by the way, the movie uh, goes uh, into uh, almost uh, exquisite uh, background and detail on, on sort of the, uh, the, the the craziness sort of around that. But uh, g- give me a sense of the fans and all of this. Right. And you mentioned or alluded to the Save Our Sonics and Storm uh, group, the SOS group that sort of uh, came about. I mean, it, it sounds to me like the fans kind of were, were pretty quick and uh, and pressed too to kind of read between the lines and and see through uh, what arguably had become kind of a tanking effort uh, for this arguably pre ordained uh, eventual move to to Oklahoma City. Were, were the fans like outraged or 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 were they kind of just resigned? To this being, you know, played, so to speak, or what? What was sort of the what's sort of the mindset in 0607 as this team was effectively in slow motion? I mean, if you listen to the words coming out of Clay Bennett's mouth, he's saying everything he's saying. If you're reading the words, is he's going to do everything he can to make basketball successful here in Seattle. So if you want to just sort of naively believe people at their word, there were some people that said, okay. Yeah, it's kind of weird. It's a group of Oklahoma businessmen, but why would they move to Oklahoma? This is a much better market, you know, trying to justify it or whatever. Then you had a lot of people that were just like, that was the worst day ever. And, you know, sports radio people and a lot of other people that are like, there's no way they're keeping the team here. You know, there's not a chance they're keeping the team here. And I remember I went to the first SOS meeting, which was outside of a storm game, you know, within days of, you know, sometime within days or a week of the sale and, it was kind of like, all right, well, he says he wants to get a team done. We'll support him in doing that. The moment that he's not doing that, then we're going to fiercely oppose it, but we're going to make sure our voices are heard that we want the team to stay in Seattle and we'll make that clear at any time. And, um, you know, I mean, Clay Bennett had Lenny Wilkins at Sonic Great with him campaigning down in Olympia for his arena deal. Like, everybody wanted to try to get a deal done. And I I think, I do think there's, like, a small percentage that, well, Clay Bennett, if we would have bent over backwards and built the half-a-billion-dollar stadium, he would have legally had to stay here. And that was his bet. It's like, okay, well, if we get a new arena uh, uh, built, we can do the sweet flip, as they referred to it in their email, which was to just, like, turn it for a nice – profit you know and then they could maybe buy another team or get an expansion team or whatever it is if, if they aren't able to move the team so you know and it would have been a good business move for them too but any anyhow i mean that that's the sort of mood of the fans was mostly like very skeptical and very like unsure of what was going to happen and then like adam said one thing once they started trading away right once they just started completely tanking and making it very 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 clear that they weren't interested in fielding a like competitive team in the years left in Seattle. Like it was pretty obvious that they were going to move. 
move the team as soon as they could. But but uh, the, the the crux of the matter though was was leaving their lease, which was I think through 2010, right? A few years early, and that was sort of the the, the acute reason for the lawsuit to. Yep, that was the lawsuit. The city of Seattle sued. You know, Clay Bennett basically said, "Hey, this is not situated. We're losing too much money. We can't afford to stay here." We have a deal in Oklahoma City where we want to go there. We want to break the lease because this is kind of like a divorced situation. And the CACL said, no, you actually have a couple more years on the lease. We believe in those couple of years we can figure out a way to get an arena deal done. So we're going to hold you to that lease. And they played the hard line stance. Our mayor at the time, Greg Nichols, said, you know, that over and over again, our intention is to hold you to the lease. You know, we plan to hold you to the lease. They went through the whole trial proving that they should be held to the lease only to like in the last hour make a settlement agreement that allowed the team to leave and i think that the nba and clay bennett and everyone threatened that the nba will never come back if they you know allow the judge to rule in favor of the city of seattle on the lease and meanwhile you know if we would have had kevin durant here for two years it would have become Ken Griffey Jr. refused to lose in the 90s. And like the team, you know, going to the playoffs, us drafting Russell Westbrook and then James Harden and realizing we have this team. Well, the team, you know, would have been saved. Ballmer and Jim Senegal, the founder of Costco and John Stanton had already come through with wanting to, you know, do this arena plan to save the team and keep him in Seattle. And so, and obviously Ballmer did want to buy a team and you give him a couple more years, he might've been able to, orchestrate things to be able to do do that at that time so it's just a total missed opportunity to hold not holding them to the least because that could have that last couple of years could have made all the all the difference in keeping the team versus leaving which is another reason like greg nichols could have been a hero and instead he he completely you know bent it over backwards and you know blew it i mean he just completely signed a terrible deal for the city and was the final straw that allowed the team to leave all right. So so tell me then about this. And we'll sort of near the uh, the rounding of the corner here, as I want to keep you uh, all evening, uh, because uh, the, the movie itself, uh, as long as it is, uh, is is fascinating. And, and uh, if you haven't seen it, uh, it is it is must viewing. We'll we'll get into where and when you can sort of continue to see that uh, to get all the sort of uh, uh, the fireworks of this. But what I find uh, just amazing uh, as this uh, uh, case is is unwinding, it almost feels like sort of a march towards a settlement of some sort where maybe perhaps the the city of Seattle could get some kind of guarantee of of a replacement franchise at some point down the road and and that kind of stuff along comes Howard Schultz with his own lawsuit after the fact claiming uh, uh duplicity I guess from from Bennett and his friends but but perhaps you can tell us why this lawsuit from Schultz Almost seemingly wanting maybe to regain some kind of uh, moral uh, 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 stature in all of this. But I, I don't think this suit doesn't happen without the release of some emails during the course of the case itself. Um, can you unwind this little uh, 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 side story? Because it's, uh, it's a very interesting coda, I guess, on the on the messy divorce that was uh, proceeding. The Schultz lawsuit actually had a ton of legs, as did the city of Seattle's in terms of winning. I mean, the side deal that was part of his deal with Clay Bennett was this good faith best efforts clause. And, um, you know, the emails the in the email discovery of the lawsuit in the city of Seattle was proven via the emails that they did not make good faith best efforts. Actually, they were meanwhile negotiating with Oklahoma City and the 
arena down there on what this on scheduling stuff for the next year. They were, you know, talking about plan, you know, they were scheming on how to get out of the deal. And so I actually think Howard Schultz's lawsuit, I think a lot of it was kind of like to save face, um, you know, and if he would have won and somehow held the team, then he might've been, he might've redeemed himself, you know, that would have happened. But unfortunately what happened is, you know, once again, this whole thing, if they would have held the team to two years, Howard Schultz's lawsuit would have moved forward, but because the city settled and the team was essentially moving at, from that point on, uh, there, you know, Howard Schultz's lawsuit—the most that Howard Schultz's, Schultz's lawsuit would get—would be some sort of financial settlement because the team at that point had already moved. You know, they were already moving the team. The the move had been approved by the board of governors already, and. Um, there was no turning the clocks back. But if they were held to their lease and they had to stay there and then they had this lawsuit that they were going to lose, then I think the team would have said they could have forced a sale of Bennett to Balmer or someone else. You know, Schultz didn't want to own the team again, but if his lawsuit prevailed, it could have unwinded the sale or made it so Bennett would have to sell to someone else locally. So so is the interpretation that maybe that, that, that Schultz lawsuit at the end there was – uh, more of a cynical play uh, when it was re- basically a fed accompli and things were basically already in motion. Cause it looks like the NBA came in to even sort of voice their opinion that, you know, if the Schultz lawsuit sort of went on, it would destabilize the franchise and would interfere with, you know, the process that's already in place and it was already too late, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Well, I mean, if they were, if they voted to move the team, but if the judge would have ruled to keep the team there, then the team that would have offset that vote to move the team because they wouldn't actually have the ability to move the team for a few more years. And that would have, you know, Schultz could have just kept his lawsuit going and the emails were already proven. So it would have taken bad to court at some point, a local owner would have emerged. It probably would have been Balmer, but it could have been someone else. And I think at that point, Bennett would probably rather than deal with the lawsuit and everything want to sell the team because like he was in the wrong, he was going to lose the court case and it would be a big messy thing. And he could probably even make a profit on the deal at that point, you know, especially with Kevin Durant as, and, and Russell Westbrook as his guys, you know? So I, I guess where I'm just trying to come out in in, it, in all of this is, and I think this sort of uh, will sort of lead to our, our denouement here as a conversation, right, is uh, Howard Schultz, uh, you know, obviously, you know, uh, quite the villain, certainly in the beginning part of this conversation. But uh, what I'm trying to ascertain is, is, is whether, you know, d- did do you think he was truly duped in all this and and, and sort of, you know, uh, his incredulity and, 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 and doing this sort of lawsuit near the end of all of this uh, this stuff? Or or do you think he kind of just kind of knew what he was getting out of? And, and you know, he's he's not really sort of uh, uh, an angel in all of this uh, at the end of uh, the end of the day. I, mean, I wouldn't say he got duped. I mean, he's a businessman. He's opened up, you know tens of thousands of stores all over the world. Like he should be smart enough to recognize, you know, that a group of uh, out of town investors is possibly going to move the team and that people are going to hate him forever. If that happens, I mean, he must, it's not, I mean, he wasn't that like naive. He understands how these things work. So, and, and I think that he literally got, frustrated with the players and the culture of the NBA. He got frustrated with the 
government. He got frustrated with this big ownership group that he had to keep making capital calls from. He got frustrated with the lease agreement, losing money every year. And he got frustrated with not having like a winning team and players that buy into him. And when he was, and he's a guy who for his whole life has gotten things his way. And when he didn't get his way, he decided to just, I think the decision was very, very rushed. It showed very little patience and restraint and thought, you know, and you're talking to Wally Walker, who is part of the nine member board who voted against the sale. It was done very hastily and he didn't spend time like, okay, we have this deal. There's no hurry. I can wait a year and just make sure there's no one local. And then once the, once you put the word out and really giving it time, okay, there's really no one local. Okay. Everybody, I'm going to sell to these guys, you know, like, I mean, he didn't do any of that. There was no sort of consulting. It was done, you know, underhanded and in back room and, you know, and was sold to people that didn't have the best interests of our community in mind. And ultimately, Howard Schultz adopted us as his hometown. He's not a hometown guy and he betrayed us and he expects you know, people to still like love him and forgive him here when he couldn't even offer an apology over the last like 11 years until the night he launches on Twitter and quasi launches his presidential campaign. And that's when he finally feels like he can say like an apology to Sonics fans. I mean, it's just so disingenuous and he is the biggest villain for us because he's the guy without him making that sale. None of this would have happened. We wouldn't be faulting Greg Nichols and Clay Bennett and the NBA and, you know, we would just, you know, still have a team here because he would have respected the public trust that he, you know, promised at the beginning of his ownership. All right. So let's put all this sort of in in, in modern current perspective, right? Because it seems like there's an interesting confluence of events that are that are occurring uh, that, um, you know, make this story uh, almost irrelevant uh, uh, once again uh, and very tangibly so. Right. So number one. You mentioned it, right? Howard Schultz has effectively announced his uh, independent candidacy for uh, president's uh, presidency of the United States, right? So that's an interesting background, and 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 uh, and it's it's clear that you know, uh, as a public figure or, or potential public figure, right, the uh, this story will not be sort of brushed under the rug, uh, as was evidenced in the Washington Post article from a couple of weeks ago, where you guys are quoted, and all that stuff. Number two, right, is uh, the arrival of this half a billion dollar franchise fee uh, expansion by the NHL and uh, and the key arena and it's uh, rethinking uh, as being the the home of that. Um, uh, I, I'm just wondering, uh, you know, your save our Sonics kinds of uh, efforts, right? Uh, you know, maybe newly boosted by uh, those two things and maybe. You know, you're looking at uh, the success of, say, the Seattle Sounders now, which has really taken over uh, and, and being become a model of, for Major League Soccer uh, uh, as a franchise. The Seattle uh, Seahawks being very, very successful. Seattle growing by leaps and bounds. Uh, lots of wealth from tech. Um, do we see a return of an NBA franchise uh, in our lifetimes now? Uh, and or uh, what do you make of uh, of all these sort of uh, storylines as uh, as a potential, I don't know, backdrop to potentially getting another NBA team in Seattle. 
Well, I mean, I, you know, our whole purpose with Songscape was, of course, to expose the lies and betrayals that led to the team leaving and hold people accountable. But the other main component of that was to motivate people to do what they could to get a team back. And for a lot of years after we released Songscape, there was no tangible path forward because there was no arena plan, and that was what was needed. And now, like you said, we have all the pieces in place. We have uh, uh, arena that, that you go by, they are working on the construction on it. It's going to be ready in 2021. Um, and it's just a matter of, I think that we're number one in line to get a team. Yeah. You have like, you know, Kansas city or whatever, and you have like Vegas who has an arena now. I think Vegas is appealing, but Seattle has the history here. We were really, really wronged. And I think the powers that be in the NBA realized that. And I think there's, like you said, a ton of money and a ton of like, hardcore fans and there's like you know there isn't that much crossover between necessarily soccer and basketball we have like tens of thousands of incredibly hungry basketball fans here who are spending their time watching nba rooting against the thunder instead of for a team i think it's like totally primed i mean i have confidence i'm surprised it's taken this long but i mean you know we would have had a team had the sacramento kings thing not had the ultimate sort of like stay of execution combination of craziness that led to them saying they, they would have moved here and turned into the Sonics. But ultimately I'm glad that didn't happen because, you know, we befriended a lot of Kings fans to the process and we really don't want to take a team, you know, from another market. What should happen is, you know, expansion, but Adam Silver's most recent comments to Bill, Bill Simmons, he's talking something like $2.5 billion for an expansion franchise fee because the teams are worth anywhere from one to two billion dollars each now and so that's just craziness you know i i think that steve ballmer owning the clippers and him you know feuding with both the staples center and the community of inglewood and the lakers like in terms of arena stuff down there um, I think that's exactly what you do when you're getting a team ready to move them. If you can't, just like Bennett, hey, I don't have an arena deal to work with. I can't make my business work here anymore. Who are you to tell me to move it? You know what? Ballmer made like a made every owner a billion dollars richer by paying $2 billion for the Clippers, and you better bet he can do whatever he wants with that team if he wants to move them. Now, I think he'll keep them in L.A., Like, but he also has two football teams to compete with now. He's third in line on the Staples Center. He's not going to stay at Staples Center. So, and I also wouldn't feel bad at all about taking the Clippers, to be honest, because they already have a team that in, in LA and, you know, why not turn them into the Sonics? They don't have a rich history. They never win. So, so you're thinking that if there is a chance and, and maybe arguably it's, it's certainly the odds have gotten better that it will be an ex, uh, not an expansion franchise but a relocation from some other some other locale ironically perhaps <laughs> a repeat of in reverse of, of the story that you guys went through 10 years ago yeah i mean we already sort of went through this with the kings you know story i mean it was the same thing happening and it just happened to get because david stern gave them so many opportunities and because the right combination of having a great mayor who wasn't going to give in and you know like former nba player of course to, to, to note right yeah yeah um so so anyway it's just sort of like you know there's other teams that are struggling i mean certainly like memphis you know they came from the pacific northwest they used to be you know um up in vancouver and now they're down in memphis and there, there's some issues there there's some issues with the new orleans um situation but you know those are 
teams that I, I don't know. I mean, once again, if the grit of any NBA teams that would move, well, the Grizzlies Grizzlies got stolen from Vancouver. Now Seattle and Vancouver don't have teams. Like I'd feel less bad. They haven't. The Grizzlies haven't won and established this huge culture down there. I'm sure people love Grizzlies games down there and stuff, but ultimately they're a team from the Northwest and we have one team up here instead of three now. So I mean, you can justify these things how you want, no matter what fans are going to get hurt. But you know what? We've been hurt staying here for 11 years without a team and we're kind of just getting sick and tired of it. We've had to fight political battle after political battle locally. And we finally have an arena ready and so now the pressure's less on us and the pressure's more on the league or the owners that would move here you know the arena thing was a huge question mark for so long and now there's a place to play um so i don't know i mean i think the clippers thing you know it's not being reported on but if you really follow this arena stuff and you look at Balmer's comments and what he's trying to do with Inglewood and how he doesn't want to be at Staples anymore. And then the most recent thing with the Lakers kind of bad mouthing him in the media last week. I mean, it's just, he's only, he, he's not a guy who's going to take a lot of crap from people. He's, if he can't get his way down there, I think you'd have no problem being the biggest. I mean, he'd become the biggest hero in the history of Seattle sports, you know? <laughs> very interesting. And so it's a very interesting dynamic now that Seattle actually has a lever. That is the stadium situation essentially uh, covered, right? Which is not a place where uh, this team was years ago, right? Where the stadium was the problem. Uh, it was an issue. It, it, it didn't get solved. It, it it continued not to get solved, and and now that uh, problem seems to uh, have has dissipated, and and now almost it becomes more of a green light for at least a uh, an, an, a negotiation lever for Seattle to uh, to home, uh, house an NBA team again. Very yeah, it's not it's it's not real until you have an arena deal. I mean, that's what David Stern, you know, when when Ballmer and those guys came forward with their three hundred million dollar plan, and then it got the last seventy five million funding got shut down by the Washington State Legislature. He's like, "You're telling me there's a deal? I don't see a deal. Where's the deal? Yeah, you had two hundred twenty five million of a three hundred three hundred million dollar deal. It doesn't mean you have a three hundred million dollar deal. So no deal." What's there to talk about? And that's how it's basically been for the last decade with Seattle and and. Now we actually, hey, we got a deal. There, there's construction equipment there, and they're digging. <laughs> you know, they're doing it. <laughs> so, I mean, that's a that's a much stronger position to be coming from. All right, last question. I promise this will be. Uh, so, give me a sense then. So, where where does the Sonics stuff? I know the records, if I'm not mistaken, have a fit are officially part of the Oklahoma City Thunder. Um, yeah, sensitive right. subject. Okay, so, all right. So, but, but but my understanding is that the rest of it, though, still that is the banners and 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 the the logos and and all the all that other stuff stayed, if quote unquote, with Seattle and or could be uh, uh, brought into a new Sonics franchise if there ever was one. Is that right? So the settlement agreement basically said that we would have a shared history. Between the two franchises, it would not very clearly defined if we are able to get an arena deal done within a certain amount of years. And that didn't happen. All the all the records and everything, you know, essentially Clay Bennett bought them. He bought the 1979 championship. He, you know, those are attributed anytime on ESPN. Russell Westbrook just beat the all-time franchise scoring leader, knocking off Gary Payton. You know, now we did keep the name and the colors. Uh, the Seattle Supersonics. So if a team ever comes back, they can be rebranded as the Seattle Supersonics. Um, 
if you know um i guess the other component of this is the banners themselves like are basically they're the trophy and the banners are owned by clay bennett and their company right now they are currently stored at the uh, washington state museum of history um, and industry here in seattle but they aren't on display actually i think maybe the trophies on display but the banners and stuff are just in a box that or, you know, they aren't up at Key Arena, for instance. Um, hopefully, maybe, you know, because so, Clay Bennett needs to approve or deny the usage of those things. Clay Bennett can also take those at any time. He can display them. He can make replicas. He can, you know, part of the, you know, and part of the sale of the franchise includes, like, the league, you know, championships and records and everything. That's part of the value of the team is that history. And so it was included in that deal. Now I'm hopeful if we are get a team, particularly if we get an expansion team, that makes it much easier. Cause then you could just say, okay, here's all the Seattle records. We're going to extract those from the Oklahoma city records. We're going to, those are the Seattle records. These are the Oklahoma city records. Um, I don't know if they would do that, but that's what all the fans would want, probably including Oklahoma fans. And I think that that would probably be available for a price. You know, I bet you Bennett would sell that for a couple million bucks or something. I don't know. And I'd like to think we could get our, 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 our you know, trophy in and uh, banners and retired jerseys and all that stuff back, too. That's just ridiculous. I mean, just, you know, put yourself in the, in the, in the as you have, right, uh, in the position of a fan, right? It's just, it's ridiculous, right, where, you know, you may have been part of championship teams or the banners and the history. And, and in, in many respects, you can't even go sort of uh, revel in it or, or you know, see a piece of, uh, of history, you know, uh, without... I don't know, being uh, escorted into a back room somewhere. to. Well, they, they won't even do that. You know, we requested to shoot with some of the banners and stuff um, back for a music video we are doing with a local group called the Blue Scholars. This is many years ago, and uh, we had to go through the basketball club of – or, sorry, the professional basketball club, LSE, the Oklahoma owners, and they denied us access to shoot with the materials for this music video. We wanted to shoot with the championship banners, you know, so – they offered some replica banner of the 0405 Northwest Division Championship or something ridiculous. <laughs> it was like, no, we want to shoot with the 79 stuff. Come on. Well, it seems to me, too, that the, the, the folks in Oklahoma City have gone uh, to uh, great lengths uh, to, uh, I don't want to call it whitewash, but uh, come up with their own sort of alternate version uh, of history. Um, and yeah. I, I don't think they've taken too well, frankly, to... Uh, the success and the visibility that this Sonicscape uh, film that you guys have put together uh, has oh, gotten over the years. No, no, they don't like that. They would have preferred this happening in that night, and maybe 20 years ago they would have been able to more easily get away with it. But we happen to just be at the right place in the right time with the right equipment and with the right sort of knowledge and interest in the topic to really dive into this. And we really wanted to expose these people. We felt like they, you know, pretty much everyone top to bottom from our local leaders to these out of town people like screwed us, the fans over who should be the last people that be, should be getting screwed over the loyal fans who have supported this franchise and supported this team and supported the city, you know, and to just to have a guy like a two faced guy, like Howard Schultz come in and, and, and claim our city sort of as his own and sell us out in the way he did. And then to have the audacity to like expect everyone to continue to bow down, down for him, him is just, it's just appalling. And then to have the audacity to run for president and then to have the audacity to run for president as an independent when Donald Trump's running is just, man, he's really like asking for something. 
All right, let's uh, promote this. Uh, so uh, tell our audience where uh, they can find uh, Sonic's Gate, uh, both in, I guess it's a uh, edited and uned or uh, directed yeah, versions. So the director's cut's just for free on YouTube. It's not like um, you can find it. Just just Google it. You have a Sonic's Gate YouTube page. It's 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 slightly hidden, but not not really. And then um, you can follow us on Twitter. Is probably the best place to like keep up on information and stuff. It's at Sonic's Gate. Sonic'sGate.com has links to places you can get it. You can like rent the sort of edited version. So the, the online director's cut is two hours. And I would say the sort of television version, which is about 45 minutes. That one's like a tighter edit. If you, you just really want to understand the story and stuff, it has like slicker graphics and stuff. That's what was aired on CNBC and ESPN. That's available on Amazon prime um, for free. If you have a prime membership, 99 cents on iTunes, you can search out the YouTube version that has, that's just like, you know, a lot longer and has more details and interview clips and stuff like that. Um, so yeah, those are the main things for, for Sonicscape. And are you contemplating maybe updating it and uh, adding some more new uh, wrinkles to this uh, story? Because it seems to me like there is uh, some stuff that uh, could be added and maybe some further chapters in the story to come. I mean, there's absolutely chapters between the local political fight and also the whole Sacramento King saga and other things that have happened along the way and things to still come because the story is not yet written. Um, so, yeah, I mean, we would absolutely consider it if, you know, we would need some sort of budget because it would take a lot of work to be able to do that. You know, this this original one was done on a shoestring, but it's it's just tough. There's a lot of work that would need to be done to tell this whole story and a lot of interviews and things. And I think that we all say we're waiting for the happy ending, <laughs> you know, and then, and then we can see the full arc of the story and that's when we might, might spend more time. But yeah, if there's any, anyone listening who wants to fund this documentary, we're, we're, we're looking. <laughs> All right, I'm going to leave it to uh, all of you to uh, determine who you think uh, is the biggest villain in this uh, in this story. Uh, is it uh, is it Clay Bennett? Is it uh, is it Howard Schultz? Is it maybe even uh, former Commissioner David Stern himself? Uh, it seems like there are uh, there's no shortage of people uh, who uh, deserve the ire, I guess, of uh, Seattle Sonics uh, fans. Uh, and look, this this is clearly a story. Uh, that will continue uh, the arrival of the NHL uh, and the reconstruction of the uh, former, or I guess still current, Key Arena uh, is certainly part of it. You can, you heard there at the end, you know, Seattle is a very interesting new lever uh, for just about any uh, NBA team that might be uh, uh, flirting with their own move. Uh, and uh, perhaps, if you can believe it, maybe a return of the NBA at some point, perhaps with the Sonics name, uh, to Seattle. Uh, and it's certainly a story that uh, we will keep an eye on, uh, especially as uh, Mr. Schultz uh, gets ready to, it looks like, uh, run for president as a third party independent candidate. Uh, and I, I'm sure this story will uh, will dog him uh, uh, in uh, in his pursuit of that. So uh, it's a very interesting uh, uh, recalibration, I guess, of this Sonic's saga. And again, if you haven't seen the movie, it's called Sonic's Gate. And uh, you can find the sort of, uh, 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 you know, director's cut, the sort of unedited version, 
two plus hours long. You'll find it on YouTube somewhere. Just search it up on YouTube and you'll find it. Uh, but the more, um, I believe, appreciated way uh, to watch it in uh, the highest quality form you can is to uh, click uh, off of our website at goodseatstillavailable.com. Just search up uh, this episode uh, with Jason Reed and Adam Brown uh, and just click through there and go to Amazon Prime uh, and you will uh, be able to rent it uh, or buy it in high definition form uh, through that link. And uh, you can, of course, project that or uh, do whatever you want to a big screen and, and watch it sort of in the highest quality form. It's called Sonic's Gate. And uh, it is not the only movie that uh, these guys have put together. Uh, the uh, uh, Messrs. Reed and Brown are the, the team, among the team, at 2R Productions. That's the number two, the letter R, P-R-O-D, 2RProd.com. 2R Productions, they've done a bunch of great stuff. They're doing a movie uh, right now um, uh, called Dirtbag, which is uh, basically uh, focused on the legacy of a guy named Fred Becky. Uh, who is a, a, a pioneering American mountaineer, uh, which is just a, a fun and very dramatic story, uh, well worth uh, seeing and uh, and uh, watching, uh, if you could do both at the same time, which I think you can. They've got a movie coming out called The Kicker, uh, which I think is probably going to make its rounds around the ESPN films kind of thing. Uh, we shall see, but uh, it's uh, devoted to, obviously, the pro- most uh, uh, maligned and misunderstood position in all of NFL football. Uh, or college football, for that matter, and that's the kicker. It's called the kicker, and it's uh, obviously focused on that. And there's a whole bunch of other things. Again, 2rprod.com, 2R Productions. Uh, check them out. There's a bunch of other things that uh, you may have seen or uh, will uh, love to see uh, that these guys produce out of Seattle. And again, we thank Adam uh, and Jason so much for their time, and uh, we wish them well, and all of you fans out in Seattle well, for your hopefully uh, uh, continued pursuit and maybe successful one at that about getting another NBA franchise, maybe a reconstituted Sonics. I want to thank, uh, of course, all of you for listening. And I want to thank, of course, our friend Jerry Payne at uh, Podfly Productions. He uh, is the uh, glue uh, for this show. He puts of all our all pieces together. Uh, he finds the uh, highest quality heavy duty glue uh, to put all of our pieces together and keep them sticking through uh, all the files that we sent out there in Internet land. And we thank him and Podfly Productions for all of their help. You can find out more about them and him at podfly.net. All right. Uh, if you want to find out more about our show, just go to their website. Well, that's where all our social stuff is. It's goodseatsstillavailable.com. You find our email stuff there. You find our social stuff there. Just go regale in all the old episodes. And if you like what you see, just uh, tweet or social media eyes or send us email or go to a, uh, any uh, place where you podcast and rate and review us. We thank you for all that love. Keep it coming. And uh, until uh, next week, if you can believe it, we're going to be back with yet another fun-filled episode. Uh, I appreciate it to no ends. You're listening. Take care. And uh, we'll talk to you then. Gary.
15 seconds of play. Deadlift with the baseline, J. Up court, fast break, invaders. The slam dunk terminators. Fans can rattle the roof. Nothing but net, big smooth. Five guys in a group. Supersonics, oh yeah. Supersonics. I'm just a regular team. Sonic